0: Today, we pay tribute to one of the greatest comic book artists, if not the greatest comic book illustrator to ever draw comic books. The late, great Neil Adams is celebrated today on a nearly hour-long tri- tribute to, to the great uh, talent that Neil possessed, and also the great fight that he put up for creators everywhere. And comic book movies. Are we in need of a new jolt? Is there a, is there a change-up coming? Are we at a fork in the road in terms of uh, kind of the, the lull of, of what's going on with comic book movies today? We talk about all of this and so much more on today's Rob observations. And welcome to another edition of Rob Observations. With me, your host, Rob Liefeld. Rob Observations is where we come and crash all of the pop culture, comic books, movies, films, toys, video games together, and uh, and 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 we discuss the effects of the past, present, and future. I started this podcast to kind of uh, carry all of my experiences since I was a kid with comic books and how the comic book industry and how the comic book industry evolved over my lifetime, over my experiences from 1974 and 1975, all the way through getting hired in 1986, all the way through the image boom, the 90s, and 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 all the way throughout the present present. There's there's the Marvel bankruptcy, there's the Marvel reemergence. Um there is just so much that I have witnessed that I have seen as a publisher, as a writer, as an artist, as a creator. Uh, as a partner, it's, it's, it's uh, there's every absolute facet of the comics industry that I have seen and watched grow and evolve. I think at one of the most exciting points in its, its evolution and, and I come and I share here a, a 36 year, you know, kind of viewpoint on, on all that I have seen, witnessed, uh, recorded the, the great thing about my obsession and it is my obsession. I, early on in the podcast, I would tell people I, I don't consider uh, myself a collector. I consider myself a consumer because I consume this stuff. I I absolutely consume it. Um, I, it, it becomes part of my DNA, my 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 uh, you know my blood. It is it is the 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 kind of the heart that is beating inside of me when I you know my wife. God bless her. In my family, they can see I'm poking in pride and prodding. I'm always looking for a reason. How can I turn this into a comic book discussion? <laughs> and uh, and discuss comics. And, and, and nowadays it's easier than ever. You, you you'd be surprised. Obviously, it's easier than ever because so much is comic books. Again, we you know there's not a week that goes by that um, Hulu, Amazon, Netflix, Disney Plus, HBO Max, you know Paramount Plus, somebody is doing something with comic books, comic book related. It's just part of kind of the entire uh, business And, and having come up in comic books and then being courted by all of the Hollywood producers and studios when they did not know how to make comic book films and were, quite frankly, terrified of it. They would, you know, I look back and I wonder, was I some guy's promise to his boss that he'd deliver a comic book guy and the promise of a comic book movie when... Everybody in town seemed to need one, and you know that's for me to walk through and go back. And my travels in comic book film have brought me to Steven Spielberg on multiple occasions, deals, opportunities, uh, work relationships. Tom Cruise, Will Smith, uh, obviously Ryan Reynolds. Currently, you know Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, uh, you know, th- through 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 all of it, there is always new experiences, new lessons to learn. Every single studio, every single president is somebody that I eventually sat with, met with, listened to, um, took notes from on all manner of different projects, whether they move forward or not. And you wonder, you know, was I somebody's, you know, comic book, uh, trophy for the day. And, and, and then back then I'm speaking in the nineties and now we are in a boom. And we've been in this boom for the better part of 15 years. Depends on when you start counting. I would technically call it 20 years since X-Men, you know, in the summer of 2000 broke through and made it safe for comic book movies with a, you know, a very successful movie franchise with very successful dollars. And again, you cannot change the facts. Those of you who want to listen and argue, you're not going to change the facts. There had been no comic book movies for three years. Batman and Robin was seen as such a giant embarrassment for everybody involved. And the idea of comic books had suddenly seemed, they were wrong. Let's, let's just be honest, they were wrong, but it seemed distasteful to the studios to pursue them. And they never wanted to pursue them. They didn't like them. None of the executives understood them. I knew from meeting with so many different Paramount execs, Warner Brothers execs, uh, Universal execs, Fox execs. But then one of them got championed through and on a big budget with a large cast, and that was X-Men. And uh, everything else that had kind of tasted some sort of success in regards to getting greenlit or getting made, it wasn't viewed in the same manner. Boom, X-Men blew it open. Spider-Man from Tom Raimi, uh the next year. After that, the next summer. And then we were just or two, two years later, we were off to the races, 2002, then Spider-Man 2, then Batman Begins, the Christian Bale, the the Christopher Nolan, and then really our heads were spinning, X2 was a giant, giant hit, because now they knew what they had, they spent more money on it. But why am I bringing this up? I'm telling you, I am here to propose to you that I believe we are at a fork in the road. We are at a place right now, based on my instincts, and all that's all I got, and that's why I come on here, and I share with you some of my instincts, and I'll, I'll explain some of why. There's no agenda here. I think if there was overwhelming evidence on one side of this, it would be easy to see. I think there's a lack of evidence to support that we are not in a lull. I, I believe we are in a comic book superhero lull at the moment. I believe there is a great, uh, uh, uh just just kind of uh, that they, they call fatigue. They they used to say ten years ago in the, in the early right around the time that Avengers blew up in twenty twenty. In 2012, and then you went from maybe two to three comic movies a year to five and six. Certainly, Marvel themselves started doing two to three movies a year. The MCU, boom, boom, that slate filled up fast, and then DC countered, and then whatever else we got. And people said, "Is there is there fatigue? Is there fatigue?" And look, there clearly there wasn't fatigue. And the journey that Marvel built for everybody, which was built on a very simple notion, stop. Thanos from collecting the Infinity Stones. We were really engaged in that from 2012 through the culmination in 2019 of Endgame. That is a seven year journey uh, longer than it took, you know, for the Hobbits to obtain and destroy you know, the Ring of Power. The one ring that would, you know, unite them all, destroy them all, whatever. I mean, Marvel went on a heck of a journey with that entire Infinity stones thanos's journey bouncing through guardians of the galaxy all the different echoes through the avengers films um the tesseracts i mean it was a really well-planned mission and we all went on that ride and we loved that ride then it ended with this enormous success and they got the They got the rankings, they got the number. I was at D23, I was at San Diego. They were held within a few weeks of each other in 2019 when first Feige came out on Saturday afternoon to to announce that that afternoon they were passing Avatar to become the biggest movie of all space and time. It mattered to them. They wanted you to know it. They wanted you to know how excited they were. A few weeks later at D23, the all-Disney event held in Anaheim at the Anaheim Convention Center, Bob Iger came out and did the same thing. We just want to announce that we are the number one movie of all time. We surpassed Avatar, blah, 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 blah. I mean, even though they own Avatar, they wanted you to know that all of their accomplishments amounted to this giant achievement. In Then the pandemic struck, which rocked all of us. But think of all the movies we've gotten that were in the pipeline that came through, you know, either right before the pandemic or th- through the pandemic. We had Birds of Prey. We had uh, Shang-Chi. We have, we've had Eternals. We, we have had... Uh, we have had Black Widow. We have had uh, James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. We've had The Peacemaker. We've had the entire Disney Plus array of shows from Hawkeye to Moon Knight to uh, Loki to, to WandaVision. And, uh, I mean, again, I'm, I'm worn out just listing those. There have been a generous amount. But I'd have to say, like, aside from Spider-Man No Way Home, which was this... Kind of generational culmination of almost twenty years of 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 you know Spider-Man movies by pulling in Maguire, by pulling in you know Andrew Garfield with Tom Holland and pulling in all the different casts from the different movies with Jamie Fox and you know William Defoe. You guys, you guys saw it. that that was a giant celebratory. It upped the bar. It absolutely raised the bar. And I got I got I, I, I got to tell you, I, I feel like. It may be at a point right now where there needs to be a little bit of a retreat before there's a significant advance again. Now, John Watts, who directed all three of the MCU-produced but Sony-distributed, co-produced Tom Holland Spider-Man films, John Watts announced late last week that he was leaving the Fantastic Four movie reboot, the, 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 the franchise, and he was no longer on board. Now, John's infinitely talented. All three of his Spider-Man films are fantastic. They are excellent. I could not have been more jaded walking into Spider-Man Homecoming because it was just a few years after the Garfield reboot, and I felt like that had taken such a wrong turn. And no matter how much I liked Holland in Civil War, I can only speak for myself. And again, I'm only speaking for myself. This is, I know that there are, uh, again, remember, I have kids. and, And that summer, my son was 19, my other son was 17, and my daughter was 16. And they loved Tom Holland. They were excited. They were looking forward to, um, you know, uh, to, to, to homecoming. Excuse me, it's it's, it's 17, 16, and 15 is, is how old they were during that summer. And so they were really excited. I was a little more jaded. I was a little more jaded. I, I, I don't think I've ever told you guys this. I, I was arrived for the premiere, and they sat me next to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So I could not have been more excited to watch uh, Spider-Man Homecoming alongside Laker Great. I mean, imagine you're Rob Lightfield. You've grown up in Southern California. All you do is love the Lakers. You love Kareem. You love magic. You love Showtime. And you're sitting in there and you're like, oh my gosh, am I really sitting right next to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? Holy crap. I mustered enough to tell him how much I loved him. He appreciated that. I think he looked at me like, you're not going to bug me all during the movie, are you? And I was like, I gave him like that. I will look straight ahead and not look in your direction. And once again, Captain, okay. But I, it was set. It was set. Lights went down. The movie started, and I was blown away. John Watts, immaculate direction, fantastic. Uh, the follow-up, you know, Far From Home, and then the ultimate Noah home. Imagine what this guy has had to to burden, what, what he's had to shoulder. I mean, corporate interests from two major se- semi-competing entities. Last week was CinemaCon, the president of CinemaCon. I mean, the <laughs> the president of Sony... Took the stage at CinemaCon. His name's Tom Rothman. He was the guy that wouldn't make the Deadpool movies for years and years, and he was semi-doubtful about the success or the sustained success of the X-Men uh franchise. He has learned his lesson. He knows how powerful the brands that he has is. He beat his chest. He said that he has made three billion dollars since the last Cinemacon. Well, two billion of that is Spider-Man, which is co-produced by Marvel, but he doesn't care. He is propping it up. They announced more Spider-Man spinoffs. They announced a third Venom movie. I mean, they are raging about Spider-Man at Sony. They believe for every Morbius, all they need is another Venom to offset that. That's just what the bean counters say, okay? And I... I have suspected having not seen Morbius that it will not be anywhere near the disaster that I have been told it is. And even some of my comic book friends have been posting publicly on all their different social medias after having seen it maybe weeks after it came out said, I don't understand what's going on. Now, I have no opinion about it because I have not seen it. But all I'm telling you is if you condemn them with Morbius, they will throw the billion dollars that Venom has made for them back at you and go, all we need is more of this and we'll find it. And they are determined to find it and they will. And they have Into the Spider-Verse the follow-up to the Oscar, the, I mean, they won the Academy Award for this into the Spider Verse for in in the motion picture category. It's an animated motion picture, but there's only two, you know there's short films, then the, and there's foreign films, and in the domestic American quote-unquote film, there's best film, best animated film. Sony won an Oscar for their portrayal of Spider Man in in in. in in their Spider-Verse movie, okay? And they've got two of them coming. And I believe Spider-Man 2099 is going to become everyone's favorite version of Spider-Man of all space and time. It's been bumped a little, and Tom Rothman addressed that. And he said, "Don't don't get don't you get complacent thinking that we're not going to roar back from these delays in these movies being released." He's like, "We have these giant brands, and they are really excited about all of the Spider-Man uh uh you know movies that they are quite frankly able to put out. Madam Web, Craven, do I have great questions about these? Of course I do. Come on. I am I I I have to you know tell you straight straight up. Of course I do. Of course I have reservations. I mean, you know, I'm not even the biggest fan of Venom, but I knew that Venom didn't was not made for me and did not play to me and the fa- the, the the smartest thing they did was to keep it square in the Sites of kids, because kids love Venom. Kids maybe like Venom more than Spider-Man and the way they like Joker more than they like Batman, okay? So by keeping them both PG-13, allowing the kids in, making them very monster-friendly, it plays to a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old sensibility. And they're not looking to explain to their other friends the genius of how the movies were shot, the setups, the script. They're just going to have a good time. Remember when you were 10 and 11 and 12 and you just went to the movies for a good time? That's what they're going to. And again, the George Lucas model, he, in my opinion, dumbed down the third installment of Star Wars. And by that time I was 16, saw the first one when I was nine, was turning 16, was not as thrilled with Return of the Jedi. Why? Because I had grown up. And then I craved a more adult approach to science fiction that I was being exposed to via Blade Runner, via Alien by Ridley Scott. So two Ridley Scott movies, right? And then all of what would come, Robocop, Predator, uh, Aliens by Cameron, I mean, The Abyss, uh, the Terminator sequels, uh, the Terminator franchise period. I mean, so 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 the hardcore, uh, you know, Time Bandits by Terry Gilliam came out there in the early 80s. And, and, and again, any exposure to more of adult, grown-up sci-fi was something that someone my age was going to, you know, judge the latest Star Wars installment next to. And, George Lucas didn't worry about pleasing the Rob Liefelds of the world. He worried about pleasing the 10 and 11-year-old, the next Rob Liefeld who was seeing Star Wars for the first time. I was really down on Return of the Jedi in Extreme Studios, I can tell you this, in the early 90s. And I was addressing the bullpen. And they roared back on me. The Dan Fraggas, the Marat Michaels. And you know what? They were absolutely correct. They were 100%. It was like the, one of those, whoa, light bulb moments. Because you got to be fluid. You got to be growing. You got to be learning all the time. And they said, Rob, that was the first Star Wars movie any of us saw in the theaters. Why do you think we loved it so much? We had seen Empire Strikes Back. We had seen Star Wars on TV. This was, you know, not the age that re-releases was a big deal. But many of those guys, you know, going to see Return of the Jedi in the movie theater was their first exposure to a Star Wars movie and one of their first movies, period. And George Lucas was more concerned about them than they were about the jaded teenagers who were coming back to finish off the installment. It's almost like he knew we were a foregone conclusion. What he needed was to continue to grow his base. Similarly, the Phantom Menace and uh, Clone Wars and all, all of the early prequel material. My sons were five, they were three. Okay, my daughter wasn't into it, but again, they but you know, they were growing with this stuff. And now they adore it, they love it, they hold it in higher regard than any of the recent. You know, Force Awakens, Last Jedi, any of those films, because they fell in love with them at a certain age. And look, there's a lot to love. General Grievous is badass. I don't care what how old you are. I don't care what age you are. General Grievous, like I'm in my 30s, and I was like, oh my gosh, look at all those lightsabers inside his cape. Look at those multiple arms. Oh my gosh, they're winding like like windmills. I mean, you guys, General Grievous was the bomb. I mean, the the, the execute Order 66 or whatever it was, 99, I don't know. Is 99 a Get Smart agent? I think it is. But you guys, exciting stuff. But again, going for the kids, staying with the kids is what Sony did with Venom. And uh, it turned out to be a billion-dollar gamble for them. They made a tremendous amount of money. And you're like, well, life, it's not about money, except to the studios, it is. Here's where I believe the fatigue, the the, the argument can, can, can be made. Are you really as excited as you were to see Civil War, as you are to see the next Marvel movie? And if the answer is yes, good for you. Good for you. I'm not. Are you really as excited to see another installment of your favorite, you know, Marvel hero as you were to see, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy or as excited as you are to see Infinity War or Ragnarok and the way you felt coming out. Now, I know Ragnarok is somewhat, I've read on social media, it's, it's it's a little polarizing. I don't get it. But for me, Ragnarok, I was like finally a Thor movie I love. I didn't love the first Thors, the first two. First Thor was hampered, I think, by budgetary constraints. I think the, the second one, I'm not really sure what happened with the Dark World. It just didn't connect with me, okay? It's, I'd be loath to heavily criticize it. I just, it did not connect with me. But the third one was a romp. I felt it just had a great marriage of humor, imagination, of daring. It felt unsafe. It felt like a dangerous movie. You didn't know what decisions were going to be made. And uh but but and it also looked beautiful, expensive, glossy, great special effects. It checked all the boxes. Just like James Gunn. I think Gunn and Taika Waititi are extremely uh adventurous voices and I will watch whatever they do no matter whether it is a comic book superhero movie or if it's a you know, TV show or if, you know, it doesn't have to have superheroes in it. It could have pirates. It could have vampires, you know. So much of what Taika does is not superheroes. So I follow him anywhere he, do- he he goes. I would love to see him do Star Wars stuff, m- m- you know, more than episodes. I'd love to see a full film, a full vision of Taika Waititi an entire season because he's that interesting to me. But what I'm going to get back to the John Watts of it all with what he was burdened with, satisfying two competing corporations, Sony and Marvel, Sony and Marvel, and all check all the boxes. We need this, 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 we need this, 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 this John Watts. I've, I've spoken to him. I've, 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 you know, shared ideas and concepts and he's really smart. He's really gentle. He's really like a laid back guy who clearly knows how to put together, um, very, um, entertaining, uh, all audience pleasing experiences. It's hard. It's hard to do that. And he did it Three times, not once, not twice, three straight times. Each success feeding on the previous. What I believe uh, when I look back at the last year and I see some of the misfires, I see some of the stuff that didn't connect, um, and, and 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 I go, are we kind of bored? Have we are we looking for our next peak? Do we need a new mission? Do we need a new Infinity Stones? Um, there's tons of missions. There's tons of great bad guys that you can build this around. Whether it's Doctor Doom, whether it's King the Conqueror, really positioning them for maximum you know, maximum success and exploitation. But that's not my job to build that. I'll, I'm just sit- telling you right now, John Watts walks away from Fantastic Four the same week that Justin Lin, the director of so many of the successful, huge, awesome, Fast and the Furious movies, and if you're not fans, I understand that. Again, the audience numbers for those would suggest that they are giant favorites with, with many of you, your families, your friends, whether whether you, you're specifically listening to this, are a fan Yourself Now, he may have had creative difficulties, clashed with uh, either the studio, the stars, whatever. We don't know. We weren't there. He walks away from a giant billion-dollar franchise. Those fast movies, even in the pandemic, were, were crushing it, making huge numbers, making huge strides with audiences. And that's what the movie studios want. They want to connect with the biggest audience possible. One of my favorite books... I've mentioned it on the show a couple times. It came out in 1997. I was on a flight from L.A. to New York. I read the whole book. It, it is my absolute youth. It is everything I love. It is called Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, How the Sex, Drug, and Rock and Roll Generation Saved Hollywood by Peter Biskind. It is a genius book. I've read it three times um, since 1997. And it tells of a period of the late 60s, early 70s. And I've mentioned this again, so so I'll try and, you know... Not dwell on some points I've already shared before But I really need to hit home for the new listeners Uh, Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola George Lucas uh, You've got William Friedkin I'll I'll assign all these names if you don't know them You've got, you know, Robert Altman Yes, Steven Spielberg comes in at at the end Dennis Hopper um, Warren Beatty, who you may or may not, not have known Was directing, you know, films At the same time that he was starring in them this is the age of the new auteur. And it scared Hollywood, but Hollywood needed them. Why does it say how they saved Hollywood? Why does it say how they sex, drugs, and rock and roll generation saved Hollywood? Here's the deal. And I am proposing to you that we are now entering this exact same kind of era. The 90s had their own version of this. And right before the studio films kind of reformed and rediscovered themselves with blockbusters like Independence Day and Men in Black, the early 90s was really an echo of the situation that we had with, with the late sixties, you know, late sixties, early seventies, late eighties, early nineties, you had Quentin Tarantino come of age. You had Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, you had Christopher Nolan, um, memento. I mean, all, all of these movies, which is in production in the nineties, you had, you know, uh, auteurs like the Wachowski brothers coming into their own. Uh, y- you had, you had, um, uh, oh man, his name, his name escapes me. I'll, I'll, I'll just, uh, uh the, the um, Rushmore guy. But so many of these fresh directorial visions. But in the 70s, in the, so, so, so what happened is the studios, all of them, Warner Brothers, Paramount, they were struggling to come up with hits. Their formulas, their formula cop pictures, their formula gangster pictures, their formula musicals were not getting seen anymore. People weren't going to the theaters. It was the age of television. And as televisions went from black and white to color, more and more people were sitting at home and watching television shows, and they were going to less and less and less films. And the generation that had powered Hollywood prior to that was getting uh, was getting bored with the formulaic, whether it was westerns, whether it was cops, robbers, musicals. There was a kind of a very set formula that the studios were offering that they had always had so much success. Think of all the different John Wayne movies, okay, or 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 you know the um you know this the stars of the era that and, uh, of which John Wayne was one of the biggest I mean the cowboy Western was was huge and, and he was one of the big big deals and you had a new age of director that was coming up with darker more daring visions that the studios were like but, but that'll scare people away whether it was the Exorcist which is William Friedkin who came to prominence doing the French Connection which was critically acclaimed it's that amazing car chase scene with Gene Hackman and then he was rewarded with The Exorcist you had you know Francis Ford Coppola who Right now there's a show on Paramount Plus called The Offer, which will detail to, to you if you've read any of the books, any of the stories, and, and and part of the Godfather struggle is covered in Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Think of The Godfather, so successful it spawned an even more beloved sequel that people argue is the sequel better than the first one. It's like a Empire Strikes Back Star Wars scenario. And uh and and launched Francis Ford Coppola's amazing career to huge acclaim. In this book, he will tell you that once Godfather was in theaters. he was going down, he said he had a long driveway, and when he was walking down every week, first of the week, there would be a check for a million dollars in his uh, mail to him from Paramount in, in, in his uh, mailbox because the movie was doing that much business and it blew everyone away. No one they said that they, just, they said the Godfather was too dark. Um, he was in movie jail. He only made a few productions when they hired him, and he was only hired because no one else wanted to touch *The Godfather*. It was very controversial, just like *The Exorcist*. William Friedkin. Everyone said, "What are you talking about? Like a movie where the devil wins?" Again, based on best-selling novels. I mean, *Jaws* with with Spielberg is the same. He has a you know no, notoriously difficult time with that robotic shark and shooting that that movie. But um, a lot of these successful adaptations of these you know of these of these movies were the result of the visions of these auteurs who were not trusted by the studio bosses. They second-guessed them. they got gotten their ways. They'd cut their budgets. They did not believe that this brand-new vision from these auteurs could succeed. But they were, and they were the only things that were succeeding, and they were succeeding again and again and again because then you've got Martin Scorsese from Mean Streets to Taxi Driver to Raging Bull. I mean, this guy is unstoppable. And from, I mean, Taxi Driver, which is a very disturbing movie about a mentally disturbed man, Um, you know, R-rated. Then Raging Bull, you know, you take the star Taxi Driver, he gets, adds on all this pounds, becomes fat, and through prosthetics, super ugly, to tell this boxing tale that Wait for it is filmed in black and white. Do you not think they were crapping their pants when Martin Scorsese was pitching them this vision for <laughs> for Raging Bull, okay? Um the the thing is it was the age of the auteur. They were seen as having been born of the movies, having a better relationship with the movies and ha- had a connection with the audience because they thought differently. They didn't see things in formulas. And they didn't need a, a a hero on a white horse at the end or a traditional, um, you know, uh, uh, formulaic happy ending. Things were sad. Things were dark. Things were that things were, uh, th- th- they were compromised because that's how the country felt, they said. That's how the country felt. The country felt compromised. We were coming out of the Vietnam War, Watergate. The country felt bad about it- itself. It didn't want to go see the Apple Dumpling Gang or whatever... Uh, you know, bed knobs and broomsticks—the—the—the—the the, 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 these happy offerings from the big studios that were suddenly not getting the—the the burn rate at the box office that they used to. So they reluctantly started believing, and Warren Beatty was at the forefront of this with, um, with, uh, with Bonnie and Clyde, because he's like, wait a second, you know, again, I don't want to spoil Bonnie and Clyde for you, but um, the—the—the the, the thing is. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about Bonnie and Clyde is um you uh you might um you might not know that it it does not have a happy ending it, it, it's slightly dark okay so so there you go there at least you you know that going into it I, I highly highly recommend you see Bonnie and Clyde it is a fantastic fantastic movie and shampoo is a fantastic movie but the the um you know the the the, the, these films were not what i mean if you see Bonnie and Clyde i mean Clyde has a has a problem keeping an erection he has you know erectile dysfunction for the first time that a leading man is showing this um and it's causing a kind of uh, some rage within him so so there i've already just divulged more than i wanted to tell you <laughs> about Bonnie and Clyde but the bottom line uh you know warren was a producer on that he didn't direct it that is a man named Arthur Penn but Based on that huge success, um, Warren Beatty was able to convince the powers that be that he should be uh, that that he should be given the opportunity to to direct films. Now he had become a you know highly sought after leading man, and he parlayed that into I'm going to you know direct. And the uh, the, the 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 bottom line is. He, you know, Shampoo was a more personal, um, per, more of a personal film, as, as was kind of all the all the stuff. You know, what if if you've uh, if you've ever seen Bullworth, Warren Beatty directed that. It was released in nineteen ninety eight. It's a political satire. It's got Halle Berry. It's fantastic. Um, he he is most definitely a uh, a force to be reckoned with. with. With with Shampoo, he came on as a producer um not as a director, but he was again, he was producing Bonnie and Clyde. He felt like the material that he was going to offer was something that he could help shape. And again, whether it was uh, Bonnie and Clyde or whether it was shampoo, uh, stepping behind the the, the the camera as as a direct as a producer again because um, uh, uh, Arthur Penn was the director on, on Bonnie and Clyde, and the director of Shampoo is Hal Ashby. But you'll you'll look, Warren was creating the scripts, creating the performances, helping with the casting, the financing. He was the producer behind the scenes. And Raging Bulls, Easy Writers, Raging Bulls really begins with his changing the way that he was perceived. I'm not going to just be a leading man. I'm going to be, I'm going to take control of my destiny. I'm going to seek out this more avant-garde. Uh, uh, material and Bonnie and Clyde, again, very violent, very, um, not traditional in, in this, in the sense that what people were seeing, but I remember we saw it on television every year that it came on. My mom and dad loved Bonnie and Clyde. My very straight laced Baptist, you know, mother and father loved it. We would watch all the classics, uh, taxi driver, uh, uh, you know, all, all Godfather. And this was the age of the auteur, it was a, away from the formula. It was the darker, more independent vision. If you've read, it's the most amazing story ever. How no one wanted to make. They didn't want. To, not only did they not want to make George Lucas's Star Wars, they did not want um, to make anything that George had done. Uh, and 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 he needed his his really good buddy. Uh, they needed he he needed his really good buddy Francis Ford Coppola. Um, and it, it's funny they give you a, just a, a brief shot of George Lucas in at, at Francis Ford Coppola's studio in in this uh, Paramount show called the offer which again is very exciting in, in how how the Godfather came together but none, none of these would have the, the 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 prestige of the Godfather. Clearly you know again uh, Francis Ford Coppola really knocked one out of the park and they wanted to fire him. They literally wanted the movie reshot they didn't like that Al Pacino was the lead. The studio was against the Godfather every step of the way, the way they were against Martin Scorsese, the way they were against American Graffiti, which George Lucas, you know, wrote and directed, and Star Wars, which he wrote and directed. They almost pulled the plug on Star Wars. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a Star Wars if the, the business end of 20th Century Fox in 1976 had indeed overseas while they were shooting in Pinewood Studios shut George Lucas down? Think about how that would have changed everything. But one, all you need is one champion, and each one of these guys had one champion, one producer, one exec that saw their vision. Now, what does this have to do with superhero movies? I believe that, that there is a movement right now away from these giant corporate monstrosities because they've almost become untenable. I believe John Watts, it says he needs a break. The guy needs a break. I mean, three Spider-Man movies answering to Sony and Disney. He clearly did not want to make another film under that, You know, under those conditions, as talented as he is, now is his time to strike out on his own, and he's got a project coming up. Apple bought it with George Clooney, Brad Pitt. It's more criminal heist minded, and you know, I think the guy wants to go flex his muscles over in that arena and show, hey, maybe I can do this with I can have success without relying on these popular brands. Justin Lin, who has done so many uh, Fast and the Furious movies, is a blockbuster. You know, visionary. He is. He, he really is tasked with having turned the Fast franchise around. The very first, uh, you know, installment with The Rock, which is my favorite of all of them, uh, he directed. And look, he's, he can go to any studio and get whatever movie he wanted. He gets one shot at knocking it out of the park on some non-giant franchise, non-superhero style film, the Justin Linz of the world. I believe you're going to see more of this, not less of this. I believe you're going to see more directors because now you can do so much in the streaming space. You can do, you know, 10 episodes of something. I mean, I had no idea that one of my favorite uh, directors, because you guys, let's face it, is there, there's just a ton of stuff. Right now, I'm going to tell you right now, as as you're listening to me, I'm going to tell you, I am currently watching uh, uh, Under the Banner of Heaven on Hulu. I am watching... uh, uh, Made for Love which I really like on HBO Max. I'm watching uh The Flight Attendant season 2 on HBO Max. I'm watching Outer Range on Amazon Prime featuring Imogen Poots and uh obviously Mr. Josh Brolin. I am uh watching I am watching Winning Time on HBO Max. Uh I am watching The Offer on Paramount Plus. Uh I mean you guys this this is a lot that I am I'm watching The Magic Johnson documentary on Apple. I just wrapped Severance on Apple. Uh, I mean there are so much to watch I don't I literally am being overwhelmed in in how to interact with all this and and one of the movies one of the shows that I really wanted to see Tokyo Vice I had been putting off and I just I just like the trailer I hadn't done a whole deep dive into Tokyo Vice but what I didn't know about Tokyo Vice was the pedigree that was behind it and I was like a little shocked to to realize that this was a Michael Mann. Uh, you know, production, and that he did the first episode. I mean, Michael Mann of of Heat. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I love literally Michael Mann of Last of the Mohicans. I mean, Michael Mann is one of the most talented writer, directors, producers that the that the business has produced in the last thirty years. Everything he does to me is is noteworthy, and it is fantastic. And I'm like, wait, this, this has his pedigree behind the scenes. Well, I'm in. I'm all over it. So now I have to watch, you know, Tokyo Vice because it's got Michael Mann, and and so again, you 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 sit there, and uh, and, and and we just are seeing so many ridiculous uh, success stories of people who are taking their much more intimate visions and pivoting them towards long form storytelling, seven episodes, eight episodes. I mean, Ben Stiller. Directs, produces, severance My buddy who is a big shot at Apple Told me, you're going to love this um, I had reached out to Ben Stiller Through a friend of mine And, and uh, told him how much I had enjoyed His last project Which was, which was a prison uh, drama That he had done for Showtime And he had reached out and thanked me for it. And when we were the only, you know, I only went to a certain amount of award shows. And I'm just telling you this because it was so exciting to be able to go up and shake Ben Stiller's hand and tell him how much I thoroughly enjoyed it. I could tell because the prison drama, uh, which is escaping me at this time, but, you know, I'll come back with it the next time. Uh, Ben Stiller directed his ass off. It is not something that you would associate in regards to a, a, a funny, humorous project, so much of which Ben Stiller had produced and written and directed. And then with Severance, you go, whoa! This is an all new muscle that he's flexing. I think the superhero genre also is needing of something super fresh. Spider-Man No Way Home seemingly raised the bar to a level that I'm not sure can be matched by anything that follows. And 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 what what my buddy has a famous saying. He believes, <laughs> if I identified him, you just laugh. He said, Star Wars always gives you what you want. And I thought about it, and he goes, look, you want a Wookiee battling Boba Fett? You want Boba Fett and Mandalorian back-to-back back in the streets? You want Cad Bane? You want Luke Skywalker back again? We'll give him to you twice. We'll de-age him. You want, you know, uh, it's it, it's it's uncanny when you think about it, that the Star Wars franchise is really built on giving us what we want the very most and trying to please us by putting all these things that we really want in front of us. Um Marvel has had the Fox catalog for four years now and has done little to nothing with it. Maybe, you know, maybe a fragment of it shows up in Doctor Strange. Maybe it doesn't. The bottom line is that we are uh, craving, I think, a new direction for superhero films. And I am certain that there is talent out there. But I think some of the people who have, uh, you know, brought some of these huge blockbuster movies to us over the last... 15 to 20 years. I think they're going to be stepping more and more away, even as I understand you go, but Sam Raimi came back to do Dr. Strange. Sam Raimi, it needs a new launch pad for the next phase of his career. The superhero films are a great way to get noticed and to and do launch a massive success. And Marvel certainly exists for either a former visionary to rediscover that spark or for a new voice to launch. And I am telling you that I believe we are in the midst of a bit of a swoon. Um, I I think that the rules are being rearranged. The bars are being reset. And we need to find a new level of excitement. Because I can tell you, it's not just my kids. It's their friends. And when I say friends, it's their 10, 12, 13 friends. You know, between both boys, different ages. And what's happened is the Marvel and the DC movies have hit the exact same apex that Star Wars hit with me. It's six, seven years later. And they were excited to go to see Civil War when they were 15, 16. But now they are being exposed to more and more and more through streaming, through films, through maybe, you know, going and seeing the Northman, which some people wanted to be more like the Vikings TV show. But then some are shocked at how, wow, they really responded to Robert Eggers and his more nuanced approach as as he was with his film, The Witch. And, and again, you know, as you you know, I'll, I'll tell you in in our family, severance is held very high. Severance is a very smart sci-fi mystery drama and like outer range with Josh Brolin is reaching somewhere between, you know, uh, uh, David Lynch and, and, uh, I mean, I mean, it's Lynchian and, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a cool kind of weird sci-fi show and it, and it, and it shows you what's possible. And I think the John Wick films, with just their relentless focus on action choreography, has also changed expectations. You know, a bunch of guys were telling me that they didn't like The Northman for the exact reason that some people do like it. They didn't like it because it didn't have the action choreography that they've come used to in so many of these big action films. And that something like a Vikings Valhalla gave you more, you know, an extended uh, stunt action direction. So... But I am here to propose to you that I believe we are at a fork in the road with superhero films. I think we are at a place where the new the Scorseses and the Coppolas and the new Lucases and the new Spielbergs and the William Friedkin. Because again, if you haven't seen Exorcist, that movie is dark. These uh, huge, tremendous auteurs, I believe some of them who have been in the corporate movie making business are discovering that they want to go scratch a different itch that is more of an auteur itch. And we're going to see great fruit uh, from them. And it opens the door for fresh voices to come into the superhero game and to kind of juice it up again. Because, <clears throat> let's be honest, uh, we could use it. We could use a jolt. We could use something new and fresh and dynamic. I definitely, um, trust me, and if you go, well, life, are you having these discussions about the stuff that's going on with your own catalog? As if to ignore the fact that, yes, I'm out trying to get more and more of my product, my comic book's, my characters made and adapted. Um, Yes, I am having these exact same talks because I think the window is wide open. Um, I'll close with everything, everywhere, all the time, bonkers, batshit, crazy movie. It it really shows the possibilities of like some really out-of-the-box thinking. And if some of that were to apply to today's comic book superhero films, I think it's necessary that some of that's got to be applied because it's... It's kind of the only way out. It's the next step. It's the next inevitable move uh, for this genre in order to expand and grow in the same way it was when James Gunn did Guardians, when Tim Miller did Deadpool, when Taika did Thor. So that's my Rob's rants. That's where I think we're going. I think we are entering an auteur phase where where some of the more talented voices that we've seen behind these are going to go off on their own path and maybe make their own brand new franchises. I mean, look at Quentin Tarantino. He's writing and directing all of his own visions all the time. And Paul Thomas Anderson, again, they may adapt a novel along the way, but it is, it is. they are true to their own independent spirit. We're going to see more of that. And it'll be fun to see how it all works out in the end. So to say we lost a giant, an absolute giant, It's it doesn't even seem... Uh, Appropriate to call him a giant because he was so much bigger a titan a god of comics. It certainly fits the 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 man the myth the legend Neil Adams passed away from uh, all of us and just a matter of days ago. Uh, I gotta be honest uh, wept like a baby cried and cried and cried. I truly uh, loved Neil and him uh, just so sad that he is gone. He uh had some complications with sepsis. The greatest thing was when he was out from his original, uh, very long, I think eight week stay in the hospital in, in spring of 2021. He did a live show, a YouTube, uh, maybe you can find it, I, I haven't checked. He and his wife, Marilyn Broadcast, Neil wanted to tell all of us to our face via this live podcast, this live cast. He wanted to tell all of us, um, you know, how he had, uh, how he had been diagnosed, what happened when the ambulance first showed up, how they took him away, um, the fact that he thought he was dying in the, in the, you know, in the emergency room, the transfer to the different facilities, the, uh, the physical therapy, getting back on his feet. It was a blast. Everybody who watched, I think it was literally took about 60 plus minutes to tell us all of it. And, uh, I, I was just so riveted and thrilled that he was alive, that he had made it, that he had, uh, gotten to the other side and, uh, true to form once back home, uh, and his family obviously rallied around him as they have. If you've seen the Adams, uh, family out at any of the shows, especially his, his wonderful wife, uh, Marilyn and, uh, and their sons and, and Neil's, you know, daughters, um, if you have uh, interacted with all of them, you know the love, the bond, how deep it is. Uh, seeing Marilyn and Neil kind of go at it, bicker, it 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 showed me where my wife and I will be in in 20, 30 years. Because uh, again, you're a married couple; you're together a long time. You 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 kind kind of you not only get to know each other, you get to know each other's nerves and the buttons to push. So it's fun, and 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 all of that was present in this live feed where he'd be like, no, 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 Marilyn and Marilyn be like, no, that's not how it happened, Neil. And he's like, no, no, no. it is how it happened. It was really fun because Neil was alive. He had made it through. He had come on the other side of this infection that he had gotten, you know, when we were all coming summer, spring 2021 was when we were coming out of the whatever phase of the pandemic of COVID that we were coming out of. It seemed a little safer, of course. and then to find out that this entirely other predicament, this health issue, had almost felled, you know, a god of comic books, the titan of comic books. And uh, but to know that he was back was was amazing. And literally, it was almost a year to the day that Neil left us. And I mean, I was uh, really uh, um, upset, uh, more upset than I have been uh, in, in so, so, so long, because Neil was a big giant teddy bear he was gregarious he was bold um the reason we were all drawn to him before I get to him personally but him personally is is why you would absolutely love him but he was simply the greatest illustrator to ever touch comic books ever period don't argue with me you'll be wrong I will pull out a face a figure a drawing a storytelling shot that will trump whatever you're trying to put up to prove that you have another choice that's better it just won't be uh Neil got work through Archie uh, when he was, um, when he was, you know, 18. And by 1970, 10 years later, he was only 28. When the, you know, in 1970, so in 1980, he's 38. I mean, it's easy to just clock his progress and see what a incredibly groundbreaking illustrator he was. Why was Neil so beloved? Starting with his newspaper work, there was a look. There's a show. You're gonna go. What's Ben Casey? I am completely acknowledging that Ben Casey is super old, like super old television, super old-timey television, like 50s, 60s television. Well, there was a daily newspaper strip. Ben uh, Ben Casey was like its generation's ER, its generation's Grey's Anatomy, okay? Big-time big uh, doctor show. They did a newspaper strip that Neil illustrated and if you google ben casey newspaper hit paper strips they'll come up for you immediately and you will see the amazing brilliant likenesses uh details n- just the faces the figures the environments neil brought a people call it realistic i i i guess realistic is okay it's certainly not photo realistic he brought a different approach it, guys like john buscema and frank frazetta had been knocking at that door for a long time they were the um Let's, let's say a, a, a Jack Kirby and a Steve Ditko or even one of my favorites, John Byrne, they are more cartoony. They are in a more cartoony. Todd McFarlane is a cartoonier artist. Neil is, uh, is more on the realistic bend of cartoony, so you would give it to him realistic, although none of it looks like photos. Again, a guy who literally is photorealistic is a gentleman named Al Williamson. If you've ever seen the illustrated adaptation adaptations of Empire Strikes Back or Return of the Jedi. Those are the two immediate items that you've most likely seen by an artist who truly drew photorealistic. I mean, Han looks like Harrison Ford. You know, Luke looks like Mark Hamill. He had likenesses down. It was his thing. He did Flash Gordon. Those are not the only things he did, but they are the most probably accomplished, famous things that Al Williamson ever did. That is, to me, the ultimate, like, photorealistic artist. The uh, Neil just had more of a realistic bend in the way that he illustrated people. Again, a step, quite a step up from cartoony, but not to that, hey, everything's photoreft. Now, Neil would draw from the mirror. Dr- Neil would draw, um, take off his shirt. He was in good shape, especially 60s era. Neil Adams for used himself as the model for Superman. He used himself as the model for Hal Jordan. Most of his male um, characters, I and mean, many again, the further back you get, I mean, nail, Neil, Neil was a really handsome guy. His, he has handsome features, small nose, small mouth, pretty eyes, good, good, good jawline structure, great hair. I mean, he looked like a superhero. And again, when I was first breaking in, I was, you know, sh- shown like from other guys who had moved out here to Southern California who had worked out in continuity studios, they'd show me like the pictures of Neil flexing in the mirror to come up with one of his signature trademark Green Lantern or Superman poses. So the guy was definitely using life drawing as a reference material in the same way that you would go to a life drawing class and and draw from a model. But he wasn't like, everything wasn't photoed. Nowadays, there's a lot of guys who they take photos and they trace the photos and that's the comic book panel. That's not what Neil did. So we had a realistic bend. the, really interesting thing that he did was his rendering techniques the way that he would render shadows the way that he applied cross-hatching the thick swirl of his rendering of hair i actually watched him in 2015 at his booth he was doing a brand new superman i think it was rise of the superman uh series for dc comics and he was sitting there with a brush inking lois lane and superman's hair uh, if you guys got a chance to see Neil often um, at those shows, if he was in between commissions, he would just pull out a a assignment that he was working on for one of the major publishers, and he would continue just drawing it right in front of you. And it was during this time that I would just be like, wow, I can't believe I'm watching Neil Adams, you know, embellish and use his brush in the way that he would render hair. I mean, he just had that extra detail. There'd be ultimate light sources bouncing off the shine on the hair. Um, again, I don't believe there was ever a sp- A Superman that was more handsome, more brilliant than the one that uh, Neil Adams was illustrating. Christopher Reeve was truly cast to look like Neil Adams' Superman. Neil Adams' Superman predates the 1978 and when they were in production 1977 Superman movie. Neil, you know, Neil Superman came of age in the 60s. Now, so many people love Neil Adams' Batman. And let me tell you something. It's one of the best ever. It is one of the top three Batman illustrations, uh, depictions of all time. You know, I've, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know that I'm not a Batman guy. I don't love the character. I do love Frank Miller's rendition of him, which is quite different than Neil's. Neils is a longer, leaner, more leaf, more athletic, uh, more handsome, definitely more handsome as Bruce Wayne and as Batman. Uh, Neil's people, were they were longer little longer they were like uh, again in that in that I've, I've referenced it several times in how to draw comic books the marvel way john b Sama brilliantly draws a really athletic like like uh like like an athletic swimmer or a a great high school athlete in his just underwear in his drawers and he says this is a great athlete then he stands captain america next to that athlete and he says look how the marvel ultimate perception of the superhero figure dwarfs what is a great Looking athlete. And it's such a perfect like contrast that John Bisema was was uh was drawing between the two figures that he's presenting in the How to Draw Comic Books The Marvel Way section on how to kind of how Marvel will glamorize figures and faces over what you would see as a normal, like super athletic guy or super handsome guy. And again, this Captain America standing next to the athlete in his underwear is the perfect rendition. Well, Neil when even, I feel like a step further, maybe just a hair little taller and longer and more beautiful he loved drawing pretty people that didn't mean he couldn't draw very weird looking or disturbed people he loved the strange stuff whether it was his depiction of the joker which he absolutely is responsible for making the joker creepier and taking him out of kind of the um clown prince of crime into the this guy's wacko and disturbed and setting him on that path that would ultimately find our way to the Heath ledger versions the joaquin you know phoenix versions um But Neil drew people, he drew them beautifully, he drew them strong, but his nuanced uh, rendering was like something that comics industry has never, ever seen. We are still biting off his techniques. I I have been purchasing Neil Adams' pages. I look at them with great intent and great form, and I study them. And the cross-hatching, the renderings, the pullouts with the lines, the delicate, sharp lines, the contours, it's the kind of stuff that everyone right now is still trying to replicate whether it's myself whether it's scott williams whether it's uh your your you know any one of your favorites when they sat down when joe rubenstein did his amazing inking across the marvel universe handbooks which we've done a dedicated uh, podcast on the you know marvel universe uh, 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 omnibus which collects all the the, the different entries in the handbooks. Joe came from Continuity Studios. He learned inking under Neil and under Neil's associate, Dick Giordano. And they both used a combination of pen and, and crow quill and marker. And you can see that Joe Rubenstein, Terry Austin, Dick Giordano, Scott Williams. Again, when I try and ink, I am using Neil Adams' fundamental style. Um, it is it is a less feathery approach. It is a more uh, a tighter line, a thick to thin contour line. Um, then again, go in with these tiny renderings on this Conan page that I bought that Neil inked, embellished. Uh, there are a succession of, of of the sharpest lines coming out of this cheekbone, these pullouts. It's, it's amazing. I have, I have not stopped staring at it for a month. I, I have magnified. I don't know how the human eye got the lines in that quick succession, that thin and consistent. Neil, every tool in his arsenal, he mastered. When I, sitting next to him in 2015, would tell him how much I loved when he embellished others. And he'd be like, like who, go, like go. Because he embellished so many. I'll, I'll just give you off the top of my head. Dave Cockrum, who was seminal in, in reigniting the X-Men. And we've done dedicated podcasts on the all-new X-Men, the big book that changed everything. Giant says X-Men number one. Dave Cockrum had a Neil Adams. Uh, he definitely, Neil, had an influence um, he was more of a watered-down. I, I believe at Dave's best, he was giving you a little, slightly less watered-down, less realistic approach. Neil, he straddled the, the the Neil Adams approach with kind of Dave's more, maybe, comic book uh, approach, especially when it came to his inking. Dave was very deliberate in trying to ink the way that Neil inked. But Neil inked him on some Avengers annuals and some Avengers assignments. Neil inked Rich Buckler on many different assignments neil inked gil kane one of the masters of the form uh he inked john Buscema, who i've aforementioned i've i've I've, I've mentioned uh gene colin there are very few greats in their prime jack kirby the jack kirby covers that he inked for jimmy olsen are amazing you see jack and you see neil brilliantly he does not overpower to the point where he obscures what jack was doing but he enhances and again what does neil do he 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 prettifies people. He prettifies the faces. He makes them slightly prettier, but he did not use the he did not lose the stocky form and shape and structure that Jack had, and the boldness of the figure and the composition. Uh, there's a gentleman named Carmen Infantino. He did acclaimed runs on the Flash, Star Wars, um, Nova, in in. Neil inked over Carmen Infantino And you sit there and you go I see Carmen and I see Neil And the reason I love this so much Is what Neil did with it Same with again uh, When Neil inked John Buscema On issues of Tarzan or Conan And uh, uh, Gil Kane on Conan Or other mysteries and horror stories You could see Gil Kane You can see his structure The shorter trunks The longer waists That are signature Gil Kane the definite structure of the face that, 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 and the eyes that Gil Kane would put down on all his figures, but then you would see this just beautiful finishing touch. Again, Neil prettifying everything, whether it's the hair, whether it's the jawbone, whether it's the nose, the shadows, the rendering. But Neil's um, Batman is widely, again, seen. Pencils, inks, his storytelling was, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be alive when those were actually hitting. When I was getting into comics, Neil was leaving them. He had done his Green Lantern. He had done his X-Men. His X-Men, his time on the X-Men. Roy Thomas wrote you know, extensively that even Neil, the X-Men was... Because fundamentally, the X-Men characters, and I've done this, the original five X-Men are some of the most boringly conceived, executed characters of all time. They are, they are charming, but they are not exciting not when you have to, if you have to choose between an issue of the Avengers and the Fantastic Four and the X-Men most of the time X-Men was getting left behind. When Neil came on, it was really hard for him to make Angel and Marvel Girl and Cyclops, which I've called Temple Touchers and Armcasters um, which was radically changed when Wolverine and some more of the weaponized uh, and super sexy X-Men hit the scene in the late 70s, early 80s. But Neil did a hugely celebrate I mean I would love pages from this book Tom Palmer, and Neil Adams combined to illustrate. He would ink Neil's amazing storytelling, uh, taking them into the Savage Land with Kazar and Sauron, the Sentinels, um, Havoc, Polaris. Neil's X Men is just gorgeous. They redid an album uh, a couple of years back. I have it right here. It is like an oversized hardcover Treasury album, and it is it is br- brilliant. It is beautiful. You guys have no, You guys know that I believe the most beautiful drawn comic there is one single comic book that i believe rises above all others and it was written and illustrated by neil adams and it is superman versus muhammad ali and in it muhammad ali was the seminal the michael jordan the lebron james of his time the tom brady of his time obviously being a boxer how do you get these two guys to box well neil came up with this great alien threat where a guy wants to battle earth's champion and superman thinks it should be him muhammad ali goes you're not even from earth It should be me. I'm from Earth. And this hatches. I don't want to blow it for you because it's a really clever story and twist. But to neutralize them, they introduce a, uh, 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 I think it's a red sun to take away Superman's powers so that he is completely human as he battles Muhammad Ali. But that is only part of the plan, part of the strategy as they move to take out this very powerful alien armada that is threatening to destroy earth and they are kind of not on the up and up in regards to whether they would honor if one of earth's champions does indeed fell their champion and i am telling you there are double pages galore in this of superman and muhammad ali battling battling different aliens alien armadas but the thing that everyone and myself included when it came out in its treasury edition form i have so many copies of muhammad ali superman and they are all signed by neil um that, that that it is is literally again the most beautiful Muhammad Ali. You want to talk photo reference? This is when Neil said, "Oh, I'll, I'll draw Muhammad Ali as if he posed for all of these." So could Neil do like the kind of stuff that I'm saying that Al Williamson was doing? Of course he could. Like like in his sleep, but he didn't want to. He created that kind of Neil Adams realistic approach. And uh, and and there is a double page spread to launch this Superman Muhammad Ali, and it is just citizens walking up and down Harlem and way up at the top of the spread, the top of the perspective line is Clark, Lois, and Jimmy walking down. But you see the different citizens. They're 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 at a street market. They're looking through the uh the vegetables, the fruit. Two guys, two kind of guys are walking down the street. One guy is checking out another guy's um booty as she is walking with her kid in hand. Um It is. There's all walks of life. There's all manner of rolling perspective. It's on kind of a rolling perspective line, a rolling hill. It is literally, possibly the best spread in the entire book. And it's just of citizens interacting. It is. And they're beautiful. They're beautifully drawn. They are so pretty everything neil did is so pretty that's why we loved him we love the pretty people on screen we love the handsome movie stars the beautiful actresses neil adams everybody he gave polaris gene gray sue storm uh uh uh, wanda they were the most beautiful versions of each of them they are the most pretty faces i never saw scarlet Witch look prettier i never saw gene gray look prettier i never saw sue storm look prettier than when neil adams lois lane lois lane is a absolute babe under Neil Adams um, pencil. His Superman, his Captain America, his Thor are the most handsome versions of those characters ever. Neil's style took the comic book world by storm. Everybody wanted to grab whatever he was doing. That's why he was put on so many covers. Because if he couldn't do interiors, let's get him on Batman covers, Aquaman covers, Green Lantern covers, Superman covers. And they bought them all. Green Lantern and... Green Arrow is possibly Neil's greatest contribution in terms of just real meaty. Uh, there's a drug story that they did um, where young Speedy becomes addicted to drugs. It is hardcore for the time. It is as R rated a comic book as they were making during the time. He dealt with racism, drugs, Neil and Denny O'Neill. So, Neil Adams and a gentleman named Denny O'Neill, not Neil, N E A L. O'Neill is with an I. Uh, the two of them combined to. Not only do this Batman stuff, but also do this Green Lantern, Green Arrow stuff. And I bought the Omnibus or the uh, Absolute Edition. They're quite large in slipcover albums. And I had Neil do a giant Green Arrow face in it. It's one of my my, my proudest pieces that I own. Um, Neil, I mean, literally, to me, he is the absolute uh, definitive Green Lantern artist, the definitive Superman artist, for many the definitive Batman artist. Um, The DC Pantheon... He favored more, I think, than any other Pantheon. But I'm going to get to Neil's influence in a minute. Neil, obviously, um, you don't draw as pretty and as impactful as him and don't create a legion of imitators. And um, and and while Neil was, had his studio going, whether it was inkers or pencilers, people were drawn to him and wanted to produce comics that looked like him. People like Rich Buckler became great Neil Adams clones. People like uh, Tom Grinberg started their career looking exactly like Neil Adams. A gentleman named Mark Beecham, even Mark Teixeira to many, or just Tex, would have um, strong Neil overtures. Bill Sienkiewicz started out to many people as being someone who favored Neil Adams' style. Those early Moon Knights are extremely Neil Adams-esque. Uh, Neil Adams-esque, Jake Lockley, Stephen Grant, Mark Spector all have that same beautiful, uh, you know, like I said, Bruce Wayne, Clark Kent, Captain America, Superman, facial structure, the longer figures, as I'm saying, how they were a little longer, a little more rendered, a little stronger. Um, Bill Sienkiewicz was definitely somebody who was heavily influenced. But then we get to the modern guys. Anything that Ivan Rice did on Green Lantern, the uh, Darkest, what is it, Blackest Night, that entire crossover, Ivan Rice is, is fantastic. His Superman run that he recently did owes everything to Neil's original Superman. He has absolutely, if you're looking at Ivan Rice Superman, you are looking at a version of Neil Adams' Superman. The influence is so powerful. Uh, when he was doing Green Lantern, he was looking at Neil's seminal uh, interpretation and depiction of Green Lantern. Brian Hitch, The Ultimates. Alan Davis. These are guys who came along later in the 80s and the 90s. Alan Davis certainly looked like a slightly watered down, but one of my favorite artists of all time. So my wife, as I'm just openly kind of speaking of Neil all weekend long, she's like, why didn't you try and draw like him? And I said, it's easy. Everyone was trying to. Everyone was trying to draw like Neil Adams for about a 10-year period. So even somebody like a John Byrne is a watered down, a purposeful watered down. What he did is he took Neil and he diluted him slightly down to a more uh uh and a very effective because john is one of my if not my favorite kind of comic book storyteller of all time but he comes from neil he is from neil john john's body of work is much larger it's more vast he did way more work he did it faster and he did it by diluting his superman john burns superman is a cartoon version of neil's superman it is less realistic prone and slightly more, let's say for a lack of term comic booky. And just in case you're wondering, where do I put my stuff? My stuff's comic booky. I my biggest influences are in the Art Adams, um, Walt Simonson, John Byrne era, and those guys are comic booky. Um Neil is a step above in terms of the attempt to make realistic versions of these characters. Brian Hitch, Alan Davis, uh like I said, John Byrne is a very diluted and, and Neil, Neil and I had a long talk about, you know, John Byrne. John is very um, open about the effect and the influence that Neil had on his own work and his interpretation of it. And he really found a formula. Again, I've covered in the John Byrne, one of my second or third, the uh, podcast, the rivalry that shaped an era. Uh, goes down the road of how how I, what I believe I was seeing in Neil's stuff early on, and how it was really a dissertation of uh not only watered down more kind of a slick cartoony version of neil purposely purposely but also he injected this manga slash anime that i was seeing on television between uh battle of the planets and and all the different um all the different um imports that we were getting over here uh, gotcha was called battle of the planets there was a cartoon called simba the white lion and uh or Kimba, I'm getting it mixed up with Lion King, but it was on, and the characters had the bigger, the bigger eyes, and John's eyes, especially on women, looked more like that, he took that anime manga approach and merged it with this Neil Adams style. But there are so many guys, I could could give you a dozen prominent people who were working, who were attempting to pull off the Neil Adams style, so as to not get lost in that mix, you then go, well, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to, go for different sourcing and combine and mix up different, uh, you know, uh, influences. I've told you what I love early on when I look at a guy like an Art Adams, his first couple years, I see Walt Simonson. I see Michael Kaluta. I see uh, I see Mike Golden. I see everybody. I see Barry Windsor Smith. Um, I see all these guys in Art Adams style. I like when people are sourcing. I like when, when Jim was doing the X-Men. I saw Neil Adams. I saw John Byrne. I saw Paul Smith. I saw Dave Cockrum. I saw Art Adams, I saw Barry Windsor Smith, I saw Frank Miller. It was fun watching Jim jam all these influences into his style and having them be, it was Jim, but you could see the style within the Jim Lee. So again, you know, we were all trying to do something other. Nobody, I think, wanted to be the 15th version of Neil Adams because we were already getting that on the regular. I could literally go on for hours and hours and hours as to Neil's storytelling the way he would swing the camera around, the angles that he chose. Uh, He loved to do daring things in terms of like put the camera behind the foot of the guy flying and you'd see, you know, up the extension of the leg into the foreshortening of the butt, the back, the extended arms. There was nothing that he didn't try and pull off. His angel flying in the sky in the pages of the X-Men or his Superman soaring uh, were some of the more amazing depictions of, characters flying ever again you'll see uh uh, an an example of sheer power and fury in terms of superman's um you know trajectory of his flight and the dynamics that that would produce especially as he comes up against tidal waves and alien armadas in the pages of superman muhammad ali again i cannot uh recommend more highly that dc put out a hardcover version of that about 10 12 maybe 13 years ago it is fantastic it is must buy you will love it um, it is not as big as the original, the original treasury edition was actually bigger, but again, so much of Neil's stuff is collected. And then the work that he did later in his years, in his seventies, I asked him to ink me on a, uh, my snake eyes jam last year. And he was quick to say, yes, I've said this. You, you want the biggest name to sign on as early as possible, because then you can tell everybody, oh, I got the big name. Neil Adams could not have been quicker to respond and told me, I want to do a double pager. I want to do a big splashy double pager. That way, I'll say yes. I'll do it on these conditions. I said yes. Neil turned it around in a matter of days. And, you know, fortunately, um, you know, he completed it before, again, he vanished and no one knew what happened to him for two months. And then the family, you know, shared that he had gone into the hospital. He had this bout with sepsis. But the bottom line is a 79 year old man. Uh, embellished my two-page spread of Snake Eyes and Destro and The Baroness. Uh, and it is magnificent. And his lines at 79 are as bold and amazing as they were when he was in his 20s and 30s. And I could not have been more pleased to collaborate with him. In 2017, he was coming out to WonderCon and I called him up and I said, Neil, I don't believe I've ever seen you draw a cable in a comic book. And he says, I don't have any memory of doing that. I said, I would like to commission for you to draw me a cable. We negotiated the price. He said he'd have it. When I arrived, he would have it done so that I could pick it up from him at WonderCon. And sure enough, you guys, I went to see him. He was so happy to show me. But he said, Rob, I didn't ink it. I want you to ink it. And you guys, I have never been able to bring myself to ink this. And uh, only recently did I print out a blue line this last weekend. And I will be attempting to ink this Neil Adams cable, which is... Very much an action shot in motion because Neil loved to have characters in motion at all times. That's where he thrived. That's where his stuff looked the best. I gave him a Snake Eyes page that had tons of motion because I'm like, oh man, the big dog said yes, I better give him something that is just moving. But this cable that he did for me, I have never um, shown the final product and I'm going to uh, get it soon enough, but I loved it, Neil. I could not buy more from Neil than I did uh, over the last decade because my love affair with him because I realized you know Neil is and and little did I know he he literally is closer to the end of his career than, than he is his prime except he was at his prime all the time so I guess that's not true but definitely from closer to the end in the beginning and then of course we had this terrible loss now I do want to share um, many people will tell you that he championed creators rights and, and they're not wrong and I want to share with you um, something that the, uh, uh, the, the uh, Siegel and Schuster estate um, shared. And it, it's, it's so beautifully written. It sum- summarizes everything perfectly. Uh, I, when, when the Superman movie came out, there was in the news media, it was, it was in the regular newspapers, that the creators of Superman were being championed to get a new deal, a new rights deal. And that, uh, you know, chief among the names that were championing them was Neil Adams. And uh, so I want to read this to you guys. Uh, This is uh, from, uh, you know, the family of the Superman creators. I'll read this to you. It's from Laura Carter. She posted this publicly And if you didn't know her You wouldn't have seen this So I'm gonna, I am hope some of you Are hearing this From the first time It was a shock to hear This is from Laura Carter. It was a shock, shock to hear That gifted artist Neil Adams died on April 28th To my family Neil Adams was more than One of the best comic book Artists of his generation He was a superhero In our personal Justice League That included The creator of the Joker And renowned political cartoonist Jerry Robinson Attorney Edmund Price And my gutsy mother Joanne Lois Lane Siegel So this is, her mom is, you know, Lois Siegel of the infamous Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster Superman creators. They teamed up in the 1970s to bring long overdue recognition of financial stipend and medical insurance to my aging author, father, and high school buddy, artist Joe Schuster. Neil, Jerry, and my mom also insisted that DC restore the credit line Superman, created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster that first appeared when the Man of Steel made his debut in Action Comics number 1, 1938, and was removed by Superman's publishers 10 years later. Getting that credit back decades later was deeply important to my dad. Again, remember, it. she says they teamed up in the 70s to bring long-overdue recognition of financial stipend and medical insurance to my aging author father, that's Jerry Siegel, and his high school buddy, artist Joe Shuster. Okay, so continuing about the credit. Neil was an outspoken champion for mistreated and underappreciated creators. When he learned that the only work my dad could get was as a typist for the California public utilities commission and that Joe's poor eyesight prevented him from getting any steady work. Neil did not hesitate to speak publicly about their plight, even though he risked losing his own job in the comic industry. Neil Adams, Jerry Robinson, my mom and Ed priest were the squeaky wheels and smart negotiators who achieved what others said could not be done. The victory brought security and dignity to my father and to Joe in their final years. I saw and thanked Neil one last time on a visit to his Manhattan studio a few years back. He took my sons and me on a tour, proudly showing us some of his most famous original art. The highlight was his large cover drawing for Superman versus Muhammad Ali, published in 1978. He happily pointed out my dad and Joe among the dozens of celebrities that Neil drew in as spectators watching the fight. This is how I will remember Neil. My deepest condolences to his daughter, Chris his son's wife, and the rest of his family and friends. And then she shows a photo of Neil alongside Joe Schuster and Jerry Siegel. Neil was a champion for all of us. He made, my wife said, well, what happened to him? Why did he leave comics? I said, because he could make a lot more money in advertising. In so many of the comics that were being published, the John Byrne, the Frank Miller, the Jim Star, and the, the Bronze Age guys, there was Neil Adams double-page spreads for sneakers, for toys. Um, for Saturday morning cartoon advertisements, Neil stormed the world of advertising. He did storyboards, he did animatics. Later on, he drew illustrations, he drew posters. Did you know that he, he drew the poster to Joel Brunner's Westworld with James Brolin? Yes, another Brolin with a comic book connection. The cover of Westworld. Um, he he did all manner of of, of uh, Tarzan book covers. When I was growing up, these beautifully painted Neil Adams covers were. In all of the bookstores, again, I've talked to you about the stores that I would go in and visit in the mall to get how to draw the com- um, how to draw comics, the Marvel way, or to buy the latest Star Wars novel. There was all these Tarzan novels, and they had the most beautiful illustrations. Tarzan, like Superman, like Batman, like Green Lantern, never looked better than under Neil Adams' pen. Period. End of story. Full stop. These Tarzan paintings are amazing. Google them; you'll love them. There's seven, eight, ten of them, just like his Con- Conan. Um, illustrations just like his covers for the deadly hands of Kung Fu where he would draw Bruce Lee and so many other martial artists um, Neil became primarily a cover artist as well as his advertising art but he had made enough money and enough security outside of the comics industry that he held the comics industry's feet to the absolute fire when it came to people like the Superman creators and he championed them and, and he turned the page for them and he got them paid and insurance and uh, and he, he he was vocal. When he saw that jack kirby's art was not being returned to him and he took on marvel next the guy was fearless he was a crusader he was brilliant i haven't said anywhere near all that i should or could say about him i truly loved sitting and picking his brain when i was on the circuit with him from 2015 to about 2018 a three-year stretch where i would see him at six to 10 conventions every year i went and saw him in maryland i bought some autographs i bought some art i bought some prints and I sat and I just wanted to pick through his brain about all the different collaborators that he'd had, his approach to drawing all these different characters, some of his favorite works. Who, who did he love to ink? He proudly told me, again, who did you love that I inked, Rob? Because And he told me this, I inked everyone the best they'd ever been inked. I was everyone's best embellisher. And now you know why I had to have him ink me on the G.I. Joe special where I got everybody, including Kevin Eastman and Jerry Ordway and Carl Kiesel and all sorts of past... Um, Extreme Studios alumni to, to ink me, but the, that the spread, the center of the book is me and Neil Adams for a reason. Neil was generous. He was kind. He was loving. He had a be- he has he leaves behind a beautiful family. I was speaking to Joel at WonderCon. I asked him. I had heard his dad was falling ill again. I we, we we stepped aside for a minute. I asked Joel how his father was doing. I told him how much I loved hearing his story of how when the 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 medics uh, showed up to um take him to the ambulance the first time he was battling sepsis neil described with great detail that he grabbed the leg of one of the tables with both his hands and he would not let go he did not want them to take him out on that stretcher and he was not leaving that house under any circumstances and it took three guys to pry his arm that's how strong neil was as they were as he was having an episode and they were taking him in the in the ambulance Joel and I laughed about that. I told him how much I loved his dad. He know he already knew it. Um again, he had just I had, I had to work with the family in in order to originally solicit this from Neil in the first place. Just you know, to get to Neil, you had to go through the family and of course Neil was beautiful and wonderful throughout. And again, this is all before he fell ill. But uh Joel, Josh, everybody in the family, just lovely people. Marilyn, she's beautiful. She, one one time she came Uh, after she had uh, shown her setup to my wife and I in Cleveland in 2015, she wrote me the most beautiful note telling me how I should approach doing conventions. And it was just loving. I mean, at this time, I'm in my late 40s, but Marilyn is so sweet. And I think she responded to just the enthusiasm that we had shown for Neil the night before when we all went out to dinner in Cleveland. And Neil just was full of stories and zest and gusto. Uh, And yes, in case you're wondering, was Neil the most macho of all the artists Yes, but most importantly, Neil was the last of the greats. He was the last, the only guys around from the Silver Age that had the impact that Neil had in any level. is Roy Thomas, who Neil worked with, and John Ramita Sr., who followed up Steve Ditko's seminal Spider-Man run and became kind of the Spider-Man guy at Marvel as well as the art director for years to, to come. I mean, they are gone. John Buscema is gone. Jack Kirby is gone. Steve Ditko is gone. Herb Trimpey is gone. Uh, did I say Dave Cockrum? Dave Cockrum. I mean, there are the giants of that age. Kurt Swan, gone. These um, these titans are gone, and the biggest among them left us last week, and I raised my hand to toast him, and all that he left us, his gregarious personality, all the love ad for in the industry for every single creator that he fought for and every line that he put on paper, I just... Cheers to Neil Adams. God bless Neil Adams and his entire family and all that he gave us. We will miss you more than you will ever possibly know. You guys, we ran so long today. I am going to put off reading any um, reviews that you guys leave for me on the platform. I love it when you guys do it. I normally read them at the end of every show, but I went super long between the film speculation and the Neil Adams tribute. So today I'm just going to sign off and tell you guys how much I love you. I am on social media on Instagram. I am at Rob Liefeld on Twitter. I am at Robert Liefeld long form. Both have blue checks. You can find me. Um, You know that it's, you know, really me at Robert Liefeld on Twitter at Rob Liefeld on Instagram. I am all over Facebook. This page, Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld, is a dedicated Facebook page. Please seek us out. Find us. You guys, my my greatest wish for you is that you get the rest and the relaxation and the mental um, peace and happiness that you so deserve. Um, Enjoy your family. Enjoy a comic book. Enjoy a book. Enjoy a TV show streaming, a movie. Enjoy good food, pizza, burgers, sushi, whatever, nachos, tacos, whatever is your thing the big milkshake, cake, cupcake. That's my thing. I'm cupcake guy. Just relax. Put your feet up. Get the rest that you deserve so that your spiritual, emotional, and physical health is accounted for and that you're taking care of yourself. That's what I want to know. I want to know. um, I'm giving you a big hug through this podcast at the end as we wrap up and I wish you nothing but the very best. Circle back. Do not um, miss our next show. I'll be here and I am so looking forward to visiting with you And talking with you one more time.